Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Life in the Peloton. This week, we've got Michael Freeberg on. Michael is probably could do one or two podcasts on him. His whole career has had some amazing feats throughout it, and he's gone up and down. And just to run you through a little bit of background on Michael, he started as a junior. He had a really diverse career of racing. You know, he at the beginning of his career represented Australia under 19, under 23, and then the senior on the track and also on the road. So he's looking like to just be a typical awesome cyclist, coming through the ranks, going to the world championships. Then moving on into his senior ranks, he won the world title in 2011 in the Omnium event. He went on to the Commonwealth Games and won a gold as well, and a silver there in Delhi in 2010. But then Michael, he stepped away from the bike after that. He wasn't in a place that he liked racing and he wanted to develop a training device called the Air Hub. And we go into that a little bit in this podcast, so it's really interesting to hear about that too. After developing this for four years, Michael decided, you know what, I'm not done with cycling. I'm going to come back. And he came back in the best fashion after winning the Australian title earlier this year. He's now across in Europe, and that's where I ran into him. He's trying to make it pro. He's racing some races over in Belgium and around the rest of Europe as well, trying to show his stuff to the big teams over here. And that's where him and I got a chance to train together. And I knew Michael from racing over the years, but I'd never had a chance to really spend some hours talking. So out on the road, we got to listen to some of his theories and, you know, chat it all over. And I was like, God, I've got to get you on the podcast. And so that's why I've got him on the pod today. So when you hear some of these series, you'll see he's a pretty smart guy and he's always very interested in, and he's actually quite hilarious at times to pick his brain on different theories or, you know, different things I've tried over the way, over the years. He's tried it or doesn't suggest to try it or he does suggest to try it. And that's why he's pretty much the human myth, myth buster. If you haven't been able to tune into the last couple of podcasts, I want to also make mention of our new podcast platform who's helping us at the moment called Wide Angle Podium. Now, you've got to go over and check out their other podcasts they've got on there, a whole bunch of different cycling podcasts, which I enjoy listening to. It's at wideanglepodium.com. Go over and check that out. Check out all their other podcasts and feel free to donate to us as well. We'll, we'll be muchly appreciated. We'll help this podcast keep pushing forward. And also on another side note, if you have missed it, the new merchandise is out. Life in the Peloton official merch. Go down to lifeinthepeloton.com, go to the shop there and help yourself to some of the cool stuff there. I certainly have. So sit back and enjoy the performance myth buster, Michael Freeberg. Cheers, guys. So we're in. We're going. Welcome, Michael Freeberg, Australian champion, the best rider in Australia for this year. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. You're over here in Girona, living the dream, trying to make it pro. And we're sitting up on my balcony in the heat of Girona. And we've had a bit of time together the last couple of months. And I've been preparing for the Tour de France and now preparing for the Vuelta, but 
I've had a bit of partner in crime and I've, I've been actually blessed to be able to train with you and actually get to know you a bit better. I knew you a little bit, but not as well as I thought. And I thought it was fantastic getting to know you on some of these long rides. And actually that just started the, the, the wheels in motion of like, hang on, there's a lot more to this guy than I really first thought. And that's what's led me to tonight to record this podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mitch. Um, it's great to be on board. I listen to your podcast all the time. And uh, thanks for the uh, really nice introduction there. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, if anyone doesn't know Michael, he's, a, he's also a world champion on the track in the Omnium. He's also a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, Teams Pursuit. So he's, he's across all spectrums. And as you're going to find out in this podcast, why? Michael is a guy who doesn't just go along the normal road traveled by all of us, pretty much. He questions things. He goes, you know what? Why can't I do that? And if he doesn't know how or why, he just goes, well, let's just see why and explore it. But before we get into that, what I want to ask you is, how did you ever become a cyclist, first of all, but a cyclist who questions the normal. And from what I understand, before you were a cyclist, well, run me through your story of it. How did you get into cycling? Um, it was, it was uh, pretty simple actually. Like it's, it's the way most young guys get into cycling. Um, it was actually a rehab or, or everyone likes messing around on their bike and then I got injured. Um, and I started do, doing cycling for rehab and it went from there. Family friends were down at the local cycling club for triathlon. Um, I joined along and then we had a really cool, um, cool group of guys there. And, um, and it really blossomed from there, like the competition through under 17s, under 19s um, was fantastic. And we had guys like uh, Luke Durbridge, Cam Meyer, Travis Meyer, um, Sarah Kent, Josie Tomich, all come through in that core group of guys and ladies, ladies and um, yeah, we worked through to the, to the national level. So you were the first in your family, your sister was also a rider, but she was cycling after you. So you both, you went down to the track and she decided to cycle after you or she was first there or how did that happen? Well, that's the great thing about club sports. Like um, we're, I'm one of four kids and um, our mum and dad worked really hard to give us the best upbringing they could. And um, so when one of you, sibling starts a sport I mean everyone else gets in the car and, and they jump along so um, I was riding um, reasonably competitively and then uh, my sister Lara she also came along and my little brother Lewis um, was came along and, and raced and they all went did states and, and really enjoyed the sport but um, I kept chasing it to the higher level. So it was that in the beginning back then when you what, what age were you then when you started cycling? I think it was about 16 or 17 when I started cycling um, and I followed the program through the under 17s nationals and, um, and, and yeah, really went from there. So at what point there though, were you like, you know what? Because from what I understand along the way, you were happy to, obviously cycling was a new thing anyway when you first started. You're like, well, you know, like track cycling, everything's sort of new, you're changing your gears, you're putting your, you're just discovering how it all works. But at what point there were you always a person who, let's say, questioned 
what people were prescribing you. You know, like for instance, if someone said yeah. to me, when I was a junior, and I first always remember this, I like, on the track, ride this gear, it's a scratch race, you're gonna need a 50 chainring with a 15 cog in behind, that's the best gear to ride. And I just like, yeah, cool, let's go, that's the best gear to ride. I yeah. wouldn't even think about it. Absolutely, no, I see, I see what you're asking there. Um, I think that every, every competitive person has that questioning mentality. It's like, what if I do this? How do I tinker that? Um, you see people changing the pre tire pressure all the time and, and trying new tires and, and faster chain lube and things like that. And so I think that's with competitive sport, you're always looking for that edge to go 1% better. And if you're, if you're a high performing person or, or you, you love, um, if you've ever played any competitive games or like Monopoly or cards or anything, you're always looking for new strategies to optimize whatever you're doing. And I think that was part of it. So whether it was training where your coach says, oh, go, you go to three hours, you do three hours 15, just because you know that little 15 more than your other mates that they don't know is happening, um, gets you better in, in a week's time or so. And then it's always, it's, it's from a competitive nature and it pushes you from there. So tell me about when, and you'll have to excuse the bells, they're gonna probably go off at random times here. There's no, there's no chronological order that the bells go off here. <laughs> But um, you would have heard in other podcasts. Tell me how Aldo fits in from Quantum Cycles. And from what I understand, this is a little bit further along in your journey. And I want to bring him in and then come back. Is that I feel he was an important part of your sort of transition and that, that sort of like discovering like, I can push the limits here. And, and from what I understand is Aldo... Aldo's been a big part of it. Yeah, um, tell me about him. Oh, he's an interesting guy. He's, um, he's a bike mechanic, he was a frame builder. Um, he's got so many years of experience in the bike industry. And um, he came from it from that top end side of things, that, that racer mentality, oh, we can make this faster. So he's sharing stories about how he changed the tube angles on bikes and changed the stiffness in the frame so that they would, uh, it would like, the bike would glide over over bumps and, and cobbles and rocks much easier to get more speed. And he, and he sort of described his analytical nature where he went out on the road and they tested the, he, held, he put the wheels, bike wheels, I guess, um, in forks above the roof of the car and then, um, and then looked at their rotational speed. So he'd drive along at 40 k's an hour and you'd be able to aero test the wheels and see which wheel was quicker. How? I don't know, to be honest, but um, I think it's something to do with like uh, which direction the wheel was spinning and how much drag it created. And you could, this is back in the 90s, you could test which wheel was quicker, even before the advent of power meters. So you're looking at tire widths, you're looking at disturbances in airflow and stuff like that. And this guy really pushed the limits of all that. And so he was one of those first guys that was sort of like, um, there's gains to be made if you go out there and you test and you see is it faster, yes or no? That's the question. If it's faster, yeah, perfect. Try, write it down, try again. Is it faster, yes or no? If it's not faster, okay, try the other way. And so was this a guy who started opening up that sort of, that avenue for you? Or was that, was that thought already happening for you in, in different areas? Um, he's the one that like, I've always um, been competitive and, and tried lots of different things when I was younger. Um, and you try and read books and, um, and learn about new subjects. I'm a pretty curious guy. And um, if you give me something to read, I'll read it and we'll look at it and see how we can make something new from it. 
Um, but Aldo was just a wealth of ideas. He like, um, he was the guy that gave me, um, uh, we saw at the Olympics, the trip lines in the um, Great Britain skin suits. So oh. we were like, let's do that. Let's give that a go. And so we designed our skin suit. We got the Midland Cycle Club So wait, wait, suit. tell me about trip lines. So just for everyone yep. out there who doesn't know what that is, it's on the Great Britain skin suits in what, what year was that? 2008, I think. 2008 Olympics. They came out with these skin suits and they had, what was it on the shoulders? So um, whenever you've got like um, an object moving through the air, it creates drag. And the drag is normally the the drag behind it so it's the suction force if you're if you're riding behind a bus you get sucked along and so it's that big hole behind the bus which is causing the most drag it's not necessarily the part of the front it's the part of the back and, and so that's what blows a lot of people's minds because you think about you pushing through the air but it's actually the air that trailing behind you makes you go faster yeah it's almost it's pulling you back yeah so what these trip lines do is you put them on the i think it's about the 30 percent and 15 percent of the way around your arm or leg and what it does is it disturbs the airflow and makes it suck around the back of the of the arm or the leg much quicker and makes that um, suction force a lot smaller so um, if you get them in the right spot you can make these skin suits that just go absolutely fly through the air like what are we no talking drag. about like and when you say fly through the air give me an example so if someone's riding individually in a individual pursuit and they're pushing just say to do a, a world record time, I don't know, 400 oh, watts. We're talking, we're talking easily 15% quicker. 15%? It's astronomical how fast these skin suits are going, yeah. The Great Britain skin suit what? technology is ridiculous. They've wiped the floor with everyone for the past, I don't know, how many Olympic cycles? Four Olympic cycles, I think it was. So the Australian team, I've been part of the track program for oh, like eight years or something I was. Um, and you see Australia winning all the world titles, cleaning, wiping the floor with everyone for the three years leading up and even the world championships that year, then nothing changes at the Olympics except they change skin suit and they're quicker. Mark Cavendish was eight seconds quicker between Worlds and Olympics in 2016. 15% quicker. There you go. You could say. <laughs> exactly. So tell me about then back with Aldo. So he had this, he heard about this or he already thought of this before? Um, it's, it's, it's really old tech, but it's the implementation of it. So um, I think he grabbed this book from 1970 or something where it talked about airflow because they were experimenting with airflow for years. But the advent of power meters and wind tunnel technology is really where you're able to measure the, the, the problem. And then you can do those little marginal gains. Like we said, does, is it faster, yes or no? And then you pursue down that alley and um, see if something's quicker. Um, and yeah, he got this really old book out that was falling apart and he's like, this is how it works. This is the science that someone with a black and white photo has taken and put it in the book. Um, and if we do this, this is how you make, make it go faster. And you did that? We did that, but I, we never quite got it right, unfortunately. Tell me about, well, just run me through the roughness of how you did it. It was pretty rough. Um, so you had a skin suit, a normal, yeah, everyday, a normal skin skin, suit. everyday skin suit. And then um, we got um, one of mum's friends, who was a seamstress, to um, put um, like a ribbing through the arm at certain... Or just like a piece of material. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the arm, at certain lengths around the, the arm. And um, 
and that was the general concept of it. So, and did the, where did you test this out at? The so, Australian titles or something? No, no, we never went to the Australian titles or anything like that with it. Um, that was the that was the part I was missing when I was seventeen years old. Yeah. So I. Yeah, 18, 19 years old. I got the concept, understood the science, but my execution of the, um, the analytical side of it um, and really testing and proving if it was quicker or slower, I didn't have that yet. I wasn't old enough to, to really knuckle, knuckle down on that. Hmm. Well, fast forward me now then, you're in the Australian team and you're, you're starting to make ways you've, and I'm, this is fast forwarding quite a long way, you fast forwarding and you, you're starting to make ways. You're in the team. You're pushing the boundaries. There's coaches there. And I've been in the Australian team a little bit too on the track. And there's certain hierarchy there you've got to abide by. You know, like you might want to do your own thing here and there. But, you know, that's part of the team. And you've got to be a team and a unit and whatever. And you just got to ro- roll that way. And I can imagine that didn't necessarily run perfectly with you. And there came a point, and this is a story I already knew before, there came a point where you're like, most people ride a crank length, which is the, from the crank down, you know, to drive the bike, a crank length of uh, 17.5 centimetres, or 17... 172.5 millimetres, exactly. Or even shorter for sprinters. But suddenly you were like, why not 200 millimetres? Yeah. Tell um, me about this, this sort of whole story. Yeah, I think um, this is probably the one I uh, was most famous for, um, me and my crazy long cranks. Um, <laughs> and it really butted head with, with a lot of cycling history, especially track, track riding history. Um, and a lot of the coaches really didn't like that I wanted to do it this way. And it's, it's, it's a crazy idea. Um, if um, at the time I didn't believe in it so strongly, it would have been absolutely ridiculous, but um, faster was faster. Um, and that's all I saw. I didn't understand why they couldn't understand, why they didn't like me using these long cranks. I'd ridden the short cranks and then I tested these long ones. I was like, oh, I'm a tall guy. If we take the percentage of the leg length of a short person and they fit 172.5 millimeter cranks. And then if I take my leg length, and the same percentage, I should be running about 100, uh, about 200 millimeter cranks. And it made logical sense to me. If you have the right length crank, you use the proportionally the same amount of glute and quad as everyone else did. But, um, and uh, yeah, it just seemed to make a lot of sense It was just physics for you. It just, it's just, you and it's obvious when you look at a, a tall person on a bike, uh, those cranks look really small, um, even now. Um, but a small person looks very proportionate um, and everything's fine. So it, there was a lot of logical sense to it, um, but it was just so far removed from what was done that it, it caused a lot of problems. Um, Give me a little bit of history, a bit of background around that situation because, yeah, so like, you know, you were, you were getting ready for the world championships. Oh, it was even before that. So um, I was in a lot of um, like squads all the way from 2008 um, and I didn't, even go to the world championships until 2011 Um, so it was my first time at the world titles um, and my only chance and I ended up winning it which was great but um, on these cranks yes on these cranks Um, was that a was that like deep down was that sort of like a little semi-motive 
No, no. Uh, the, the winning the world championships was because I knew I was never going to get another shot. Okay. So I better get it right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's what happened there. But um, in the lead up to that, um, with the long cranks, um, I did some pretty crazy stuff on the track. Like I had one of the, I was the first guy in the team um, to go under two minutes for a flying 2K in training um, on these super long cranks. Um, was this ever changing their opinion at that time? I don't know. Um, Were they just like, you know what? I hate to admit it, but this guy might be right. <laughs> I, I don't think we'll ever know that. But um, yeah, it was, there was some pretty cool stuff um, that we did. Um, and now looking back on it, like even going to the World Championships, like I said to Dave McKenzie, um, he rang me up. They ran out of guys for the world titles. They needed to score points for the Olympics. They're like, God damn it, we're going to have to use this free <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're at the bottom of the list. We're running out of points. We're not going to qualify for the Olympics. Going to have to use free uh, So yeah, they gave me a call. And I was like, can I use the long cranks? Like, yeah, fine. <laughs> Just do it. Just get the points. I was like, all right, great. I'll get the points all I'll right. I'll get the points all right. Um, but it's so interesting. So the long cranks, ultimately, <laughs> they um, took about four seconds off my standing kilo time. So that's what we worked out in the end. Um, so on normal length cranks, I was about a... Well, tell me why, though. Like, for all the yeah. geeks out there, why, why, why? Um, so we didn't, I didn't know at the time, but now I know a lot more about exercise physiology. It probably lies somewhere in the fact that when you do anaerobic efforts, you produce hydrogen ions. Um, a lot of people call that lactic acid. Yep. Just think of them as the same thing. So these hydrogen ions, they um, leak into your muscles and they stop you from being able to contract hard. So like when you feel that burn, you're going up the hill, your muscle contraction slow down and you just can't produce any more force anymore. So with the long cranks, you say you only need 10, you need 10% less force to produce the same amount of power. And so when that lactic acid started building up on me, I had 10% more room to produce more power and that's why I went quicker. So why wouldn't you keep going longer? Where is that limit keep stop? Um, so the, yeah, so- Do you know what I mean? It's, like it's practicality. Yeah. Um, because I'm really tall, I can ride really long cranks. I definitely would not recommend people going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. It's, it's more work than you need. If you're, like, if, you're, if you're someone new to cycling, you're looking for the edge, don't go down crank lengths because it's, it's a lot of hard work. Um, what were the negatives of it? Yeah. Aside from fighting, you know, the... Yeah, fighting the norm is probably the biggest side effect <laughs> and people think you're crazy. Um, it's only if you're in going to the Olympics and that you need that marginal gain. Um, and that's, it, it's about it. Um, I did actually see um, recently some, oh, actually quite a while back, there's a great article from Jim Miller. Uh, I think it's Jim Miller. Who's he? He's a crank length specialist. And in one of his pr presentations, he talked about how the influence of crank lengths on all different things and in the end he said there's no difference in performance on any different crank length um, and I agree with that that it's your performance is mainly limited by your cardiovascular system mm. so a lot of aerobic athletes think about that but um, what long crank lengths do do is that you fatigue per contraction so if you're riding big cranks you've got to ride big rears less contractions and it delays your time for the fatigue and this is this is in the literature yeah okay yeah so tell me then how does the red violet cake lead to better recovery <laughs> oh dear this is the problem of having uh family members on the production team <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, this is, um, this is a number of years ago. Oh, please, they're going to give me hell for that. They gave me hell for this for so long. Um, for everyone out there who doesn't know, tell us about a little bit about the background of this theory. Look, it's a, it's a really basic one where I was like, all right, in the science, they say you've got to have X amount of carbs, X amount of protein when you, get, when you finish a ride. And, um, and ultimately, um, I wanted my cake and eat it too. <laughs> um, so I was like, uh, what better way than um, sitting down to a nice piece of red velvet cake at the end of your ride? Um, got all the carbs, everything you need to recover, and it makes me happy. Yep. So you'd come home every day and have it at a cafe, or you just made your own red velvet? No, no, no. There was this really nice cafe called um, Sherbet just down the road. And so I um, finished my rides there, tucked in there. So is there an element to some of your theories to making things that you like, proving them to be performance <laughs> enhancing, if you know what I mean? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know what? I love drinking beer. So I'm going to find a way that that <laughs> works for me and I can prove that. Look, I... Um, Does it work that way or it comes the other no, way? No, no, no. Eventually you find the things that work and don't work. And ultimately red velvet cake was something I had to let go. <laughs> yeah. um, my family was very happy about that. But um, yeah, no, I um, prefer more of the normal techniques. I had to cut a bit of the fat out because ultimately red velvet cake has a lot of fat in it. Speaking of food, we got to talk about the corn era. <laughs> and this is something that I've heard also doing a little bit of research that you'd, you'd done some research yourself and this is 10 to eight bell, the typical <laughs> long 10 to eight bell. Um, you've done some research that corn gives you a good sort of, you know, stomach bacteria, the micro, you know, the probiotics and stuff like that. So you're like, you know, I'm going to just introduce a little bit more corn to my diet. But you didn't just like a normal person go and get normal corn and eat it and just introduce a little bit to your diet. You went, I'm going to get canned corn and just eat only canned corn. <laughs> Is that how it went? <laughs> oh dear. Um, it's not as extreme as people make it out to be. <laughs> Um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of research out there on the gut microbiota um, and if you have really healthy gut microbiota you create short chain fatty acids um, and they're really anti-inflammatory and they give you good health and um, make sure you absorb all your food. Um, there's a lot of nutrients in corn, like do you want to have, there's a lot of different foods you can eat but if you pin yourself to something a little bit more healthier than the other options out there, like cake, then um, you're gonna possibly be better in the long run. Why um, don't you look at things like, you know, probiotics or a, a kombucha or even sauerkraut or things like that? Why was it corn? Um, corn's one of those really ubiquitous foods. Um, it's canned, easy transportable, available all over the world. You look at, um, corn's still one of my favorites because um, the Kenyan runners was one of their staple diets. Is was it? yep, it's like a it's like a maize uh, or maize is corn, but it's like a ground corn, and they eat it as um, it's almost like polenta, I think it is, and they eat that as their staple diet before they go training and for recovery. Um, that uh, mixed with um, like leafy greens, like a, almost like a spinach type thing, mm. um, so they get their carbohydrates, and they also get all their, a lot of their B, B vitamins, um, nitrates, and stuff from the green vegetables, and they really live a simple diet. Um, and so I was like, all right, let's include a bit of corn in here. It's going to keep me healthy, keep my gut healthy, keep me regular, and, um, and went from there. 
Where did it tip over to, I'm going to introduce a little bit of corn here to, I'm only going to eat corn? <laughs> no. no. Okay, let's be honest. It didn't go to just, I was only going to eat corn. But um, <laughs> it, there's no harm in introducing a little or a lot of corn into your diet. I can go from there. And I'm not sponsored by corn board. <laughs> oh, God. The old corn diet. Let me look back here, because there's a couple of things now, I'm getting a little bit more serious, because this is something I did want to talk to you about. This is something that has happened over the last few years, and a transition out of that whole Australian program into where you are now, in between those two sort of periods was this amazing invention that you developed called the Air Hub. And after doing a little bit of research about you, I heard about this thing that you did way back where you put some water into your tires to create resistance. And you can explain this a little bit more, but it was about, you're out training, you're like, yo, I want more resistance so I can train with the same people and have more resistance than them. And then the second thing, which was probably a bit more down the road was creating resistance with some lights. And I think from hearing those two stories, I was like, hang on, was that sort of the, the seed that grew the air hub? So, what I'm asking is, tell us a little about the air hub at the end, but about these two sort of things beforehand. Okay, let me just make things clear to, to start with yeah. that the pendulum is swinging very wildly at the start of this podcast and there's a lot of crazy ideas being thrown around. Exactly, I want to but, get that out there. Yeah, yeah, let's just get that out there. And, um, and I look back on some of the things I've done and I'm like, man, that is, that is out of control and you should dial it back a few steps. But the pendulum's getting closer to the mean and we're getting some really good science behind the ideas now and um and um starting to see some really great results and so the, the waters in the tire thing is is one of those ones where it was the start of analyzing how what you do on the bike can change what happens in races um so waters in the tires very simple let's make the bike heavier lee howard used to train with the bidden of sand in his bike make it high heavier um, so that on race day, take the bin out, the kilo of weight gone, boom. Simon Gerrans used to put lead in his frame to climb up Mount Buller. There you go. Thing. There you go, yeah. There you go. Um, so yeah, water in the tyres, um, it's rotating mass. So I think I put about, you can put about 1.2 kilos of water in two by 25 mil tyres. So front normal, and rear. Normal tyres or yep. they had to be? No, 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 no. If it can hold air, it can hold water. How did you do that? So what I did, um, I had to sacrifice a track pump uh, unknowingly at the time. So I had a track pump and um, I got the hose from my garden hose and uh, turned the tap on. And then you know how the, you, you pump, you, when you lift the pump up, it sucks in air through the top. So you put the water where the air would go in and it sucks in the water. And then you push it down and the water goes into the, into the tube. So pretty simple mechanism. Takes a little bit of fiddling to get right because there's trying to push air in there, you've got to get air out, put more water in. Um, so instead of air, you had water? Yep, so I put air, water into the tubes. Um, Could you create that pressure or were they still a bit squidgy? Still a bit squidgy. You can try and get, you had to get a little bit of air in there, um, but it's still not ideal. You can get them up to like 80 psi or so. Um, Crazy. Yeah, but um, no, it, it worked really well actually. Um, it's one of those ones that you've written down in the journal saying, if you ride around with 1.2 kilos of water in your tires, it really improves your acceleration and seat of power. So when you are accelerating a heavy mass, you're almost like neuromuscular capacity from all the traffic lights and all the little kicks. And when you're rolling through in a group, 
has to increase because you're accelerating and decelerating mass so quickly. Once you're at speed, you know it's too much of a difference. Yeah, there was a lot of roll, but you'd be surprised at how much your speed changes through a ride. Um, but ultimately, water in the tyres is a bit, bit difficult when you get a puncture. Um, so I had to transition across to lead weights on the rim. Much better application, works great. Um, they just Would you evenly on. put that around the rim or yep. just put in one spot? No, no, all the way around the rim with um, stick-on car weights for balancing car wheels, and that's the same thing. So if you're training for a crit season, you have heavy wheels, and so you do all your training on the heavy wheels, hard to accelerate, decelerate, and then you go crit racing, take the heavy wheels off, man, it is like you were just floating out there because that's where the hard, that's where the difficulty is in crit racing. It's the acceleration. But couldn't you do that just with like simple like, I'm going to ride box rims, Mavic rims, and then ride lightweight wheels in a crit? It's the same sort of but idea. But not as extreme. Yeah, but not as extreme. Um, a, a lot, people forget that um, we're a product of our environment. So if all you know is living in Colombia at 3,000 metres, riding up steep 10% climbs, you're going to be, and then you come back down to sea level and you ride, ride around with your, you know, with normal people, you're going to be unbelievable climber. Or if you're always riding in crosswinds and you know how to deal with crosswinds, you're going to be unbelievable in the crosswinds. So if you happen to ride... Because it a, becomes a norm for you. It is. Like, so when it becomes a crosswind, you're just like, and? And it's normal. And you know how to pedal and you know how to do it. Yeah. Just like Swaino um, on the potty last week with his um, riding the Kmart bike around. Yeah. That guy did thousands of k's on Kmart bike. And then you put him on a regular roadie and he's world class. Yeah. So it's, you're a product of your environment. And so the way I approached it was like, if, I, if this becomes the new normal and then I go put on the expensive stuff, we're going to be in an advantage. Mm. So that was the water and the wheels. Yep. Was that starting to plant the seed like after the water and the wheels and the lead weights, you're like, you know what, I could actually probably develop something better than this or it was way too far beyond that? It took, it took a couple of years. It took quite a number of years actually um, to get to that next lap. Yeah, it took a number of years um, where water in the tyres was great and it did its job. It was able to slow me down. It was able to improve the, my power output on the flat. I could train with a few more partners. Problem was I couldn't turn it off when I needed it. And yeah, basically I couldn't turn it off. So when I was in Italy at the training at the AS, I had this same problem where I was getting really fit. Um, and when I do my tempo sets, I'm going 45 Ks an hour and it's just not sustainable, not safe. Nobody wanted to ride with me or nobody could ride with me on those specific days. Um, and I needed to, I thought there's a better way of doing this. Um, and that's where the air hub idea came from. What about the lights though? Oh, so the lights, um, that was the first thing I did when I got back from Italy that year. I was like- So after this re revelation yep. in Italy, you're yep. like air hub or something. Yep, something. And you went home and the lights. Yeah, so what I did is I got a e-bike motor, big 250 watt thing, um, reconfigured the wiring inside of it. Um, to produce power. How did you do that? Is that something you just knew already or you already, you had to go, I'm going to try and do this or you're always researching or you just got that sort of mind? Um, yeah, look, I'm, I research and read everything. So if you want to work out how to do something, what do they say? Um, with the Wi-Fi connection and an inquisitive mind, you can achieve anything. And so <laughs> I sort of took that to heart and you read how magnets and wires and voltage work and... Um, trial and error. Trial and error, yeah. I, Got some money together, it cost me probably like a thousand bucks or 500 bucks, and then um, went and bought, bought up all the local, all the e-bike motors in the local area and started 
opening up, reconfiguring the wires to be able to produce power. Um, and that's where it started. So um, I had an e-bike motor powering a light through a switch um, to produce resistance. And so when I want a resistance, I clunk, turned the big 20 amp switch on, power went through the light and um, had resistance. And so on an, only on an e-bike? No, so I had to, I had to really modify my road bike to make it fit because they don't make e-bike motors for road bikes um, in, the, in the wheel. So you had a big 20 mil axle and had a lot of... So the around. resistance was in the wheel? Yep, same as what the, uh, the air hub looks like. Okay. Same idea, yep. Um, but where we've got to today with the air hub is that it's like five kilos light, it's like one and a half kilos compared to, to seven or eight, nine kilos with the e-bike motor. Um, it's quick release into your bike. That's something I needed because you can't have your race bike with big filed out dropouts, just not safe. Does an e-bike power from the rear wheel or from the front wheel? Front wheel. So front wheel is so much easier in every way because you don't have to fiddle with clusters and gears and spacing. And you wouldn't believe how many different size spaces and metrics and... So that's how an e-bike is powered. Same idea as, as an air hub. Yep. From the front wheel, that drives it. Yep. Um, uh, most of them, the cheaper versions do that, yeah. Some of the more expensive ones have rear wheel drive if they're higher power, um, but they're gonna cost you more and you may have to buy a special bike to fit them. And so the idea back then when you thought, how do I reverse an, an e-bike, when you were riding with that wheel, the, the warped version of the e-bike wheel on your road bike, yep. that was just sort of doing reverse. Yeah, so it was an e-bike motor in reverse, short-circuiting itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. With a light. Why With did a light. you need a light? So when you, uh, to create resistance, you need to burn off energy. So I used the big 100-watt light to burn off all the extra energy. That was slowing me down. Um, and then I was able to control it as well. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So then, so then after you were doing this light, experiment for a while we just like hang on this is just got to be i got i got to do something about this yeah very quickly um as soon as i rode it i was like wow this is incredible this is it works it works it works the frankenstein's alive yeah so we if if i could get this to a way where so i'd, I'd be riding down the road on the bike path five minutes from my house hit the bike path boom turn on the light and i'd be able to do it 300 watt effort straight out of the gates and i'm like at like 25k yeah, an hour 25 30k an hour and i was like wow this is incredible normally i'd have to drive an hour i could do i could race myself around my around the block and get 40 minute workout in like just like that whereas having to build up the mental capacity to go out all right i have to do three hours today um you get the same training effect in 40 minutes mm. just because there's more resistance it's like like here we go out here straight up a climb and it's and it's fantastic mm. um and so that's when i really started thinking i have to there's got to be more people out there who want this e exactly and then you think like well i could hook it up with varying degrees of control where i could control from a smartphone it could listen to your heart rate monitor and adjust the resistance to keep you in a training zone we can have it automatically do intervals we can listen to your power meter mm. we can have it controlled in so many ways um and this is the next step um, we've got all our lab-based training indoors. Let's bring that outdoors where people want to be. People want to be outside. They don't want to be indoors. No. <laughs> yeah. And so at that point, though, in your career, were you thinking then, was there a transition there of like, 
okay, originally you developed this product to make you better as a cyclist. But as I'm listening to you now, it's starting to develop into sort of a business sort of idea. Hang on, there's more people out there that want this and maybe this could be something cool to make. And there's a bit of a transition there because as a pro cyclist, it's no longer about you anymore to develop this solely for you or was it? So the idea was when I was looking into all of this, I, um, I think Bradley Wiggins was winning the tour. And um, you're looking at how fast they're climbing. They're climbing at 5.86 watts per kilo. And you do a little bit of maths and you're like, all right, if I want to win the Tour de France, I have to do four, six kilos, 80 kilos, 480 watts for an hour. I'm like, that is ridiculous. That is, <laughs> absolute, is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> um, but not only is that ridiculous for one hour, you're like, you work back the training zones. You're like, because everyone's got their training zones, like your tempo zone, your endurance zone. Your tempo zone, if you've got a threshold that high, is like, 400 to 450 watts your endurance pace is like 320 to 400 watts or 380 watts so if you're riding it's like around 45 k an, an hour i'm like no wonder nobody has a threshold of 480 watts because nobody can ride for any point amount of time at 45 k an hour nobody can train with anyone that's riding at 45 k an hour you just so, like cl clocking off loops that's like, it you go on warp speed yeah. and um no wonder nobody can go that fast because it's just not practically possible to get the training load in to be able to support an engine that big. And so I was like, let's do it. Let's give it a crack. If you want to be like, if you set your sights on the Tour de France and you want to be as good as Bradley Wiggins, you got to start at the bottom. And you're never, you're definitely never going to get there unless you build the air hub. Mm. because you, it's, not, it's not mathematically possible to be able to train to the ability of that. It's, it's all right if you lived in Tenerife and you did laps of the volcano every day, but uh, I didn't have that available to me. I lived in Perth and there's no, no big climbs there. And there's also the psychological factor of that too. Like, you know, we can all achieve that, um, like you said, going up Tenerife every day or sitting on an ergo and doing it every day, but we're not putting in the psychological factor. The thing yeah. that the Air Hub allows is, like you said, I can go training with my mates. I can even go training with my wife or my girlfriend, which I know that Luke does, Luke Durbridge. Yep. He has the Air Hub and he goes, I do my recovery rides, my easy rides with his wife, Lara. She cruises along. He can do his hard effort next to her and no one's the wiser. Yep. Whereas before he was just boosting off and just leaving her out in the middle of nowhere and she'd have to get home. Yeah, we did some really incredible um, training this year before nationals um, where we're on the bike path and uh, we're doing our tempo effort at 350 to 400 watts and we're doing 35 k's now. Nobody's none the wiser. Yeah. Someone's got a normal endurance day and you can have your specifics on that day um, you go out together, you meet at the coffee shop, you go out together, you do your work right next to them and you're doing what has to be done to get the result um, and you're becoming a better athlete and that's something that would never have been possible if we didn't have the air hub to be able to con control the resistance. And I think the air hub, and everyone needs to go and check out the air hub, give it a plug now, what's the website? Uh, airhub.com.au Go and check it out because there's a whole podcast on the Air Hub and there's a whole story behind that three-year period of the building or two-year? Uh, it was about five years. Actually. Five years. Five years, yeah. Five-year period, which I've spoken to you about, which is an awesome pod too, but we're not going to touch on it today. But one thing I want to, and you just touched on then, one thing I want to talk to you about is, quickly at the end here, is this lead up to the Nationals. 
sequences. I think something else that I love about you too is that, and this is the whole the whole theme of this podcast is that I find with a lot of professional sportsmen, especially professional cyclists, is that they're a little bit scared to go out on a limb and just go, you know what, that's my goal and I'm going to do it and I'm going to commit 100% to that and, you know, because at the end of the day, you could fail and everyone's like, yeah, told you you'd never do it, you know, and the Nationals, you can tell me a little bit more about this, but from what I see from the outside was, I want to come back, I want to go pro, this is a couple of years in the making, came back to the Australian scene, started setting the world on fire again. How am I going to become professional? Well, I need to ride two down under. How am I going to ride two down under? I need to ride a good nationals result. Okay, I'm going to train for the nationals and ride two down under and I'm going to go on from there. And that's where we're at now. But lead me up to the nationals because I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams would have thought Michael Freeberg would have won the 2019 nationals on the course that it is. You know, like given... Given another course, you know, an undulating sort of finish with a bit of a flat sprint with a bit of crosswind, I would have said, yeah, Freebs is up. But that type of course, it's hell for you, for me, and I would think for a guy like you too. But tell me about that lead up and that thought process to this year's victory. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. It was, it's quite a few months in the process. Um, and... It's exactly as you said, I was like, I'm coming back. I need to go pro. I need to race Tour Down Under. If you want to race Tour Down Under, you've got to be the best um, non-pro to be able to get a spot. Well, apparently now to be able to have the chance to have the spot. And then um, even further to that, another um, cat among the pigeons is you've got to be on whereabouts, which was a rule they brought in recently. So there was a few things that had to line up in order to get there. And um, so I had to start planning this out back in, I think it was in September where we raced Tour of China, had a great couple of weeks in China, um, did really well. And then we shut it down for a month um, and started playing the rebuild. So we did a, a two month rebuild internationals. And- uh, When you say we, who, who, who's that? Uh, I use the word we because uh, I don't know. You're, I, you're, I did, I did a two month rebuild. What about your, your partner? Yeah, well, I, she's involved in this, absolutely. or is Luke a lot as of well, that, your family. Yeah, there's a lot of people support structures that have to to allow you to do these things. Like if I'm riding all day every day, you have to have really understanding family and partner. And my girlfriend Sinead, um, she was like, "Yeah, babe, go in nationals. You can <laughs> do it." <laughs> um, and so we had this idea of coming to Europe this year. So while I was training, she was working. Um, so she shaved up a. a big chunk of money so we could come away and pay for accommodation and rent while we're in Europe this year and um, I'd be out on the bike and so the plan was um, I think I pegged it at about 800 k's a week for eight weeks into the lead up internationals um, and then within that I had great t- training partners in Luke Durbridge and Matt Burton and um, we worked a bit of intensity in that and went from there. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that build up it was just like you know what I need to achieve. Was there ever the was there ever the scope of I'm going to win nationals, or was it just that good result at nationals? I had to be the the. So we on past years we made the assumption um, that you had to be the best non-pro 
at the Nationals to get that wild card spot into the national team, um, which has happened a few times in the past. Um, and so that's what we were targeting. Um, it was interesting this year that I had to win it to be, be the best non-pro with Chris Harper in second. Mm. Um, and so I knew I had to be fit. I'd raced it a couple of times. and Did that cross your mind in the race? Holy shit, I'm going to have to win this thing. <laughs> if I want to do down no. under, I'm going to have to win this bloody thing. No, it actually happened a couple of weeks earlier when uh, they put the press release out. And, um, yeah, and there was only one spot remaining. So I, <laughs> The winner. The winner, yeah. So basically I had to go very, very well in order to get the spot. Um, yeah. Did that dampen your spirits at the time? No. Uh, well, we'd done the work by the point, like for the four weeks out or so, where I knew we were going to go well. We'd be, been better than all the previous years, uh, performance-wise, in the in the tempo and the top-end stuff that we were doing. And, um, and, yeah, I had faith in the program that I was able to... It was going to be good. Your program? Yep. Yeah, my program. <laughs> that, um, that I was going to have the... Not, if not the legs on the day, even if I had a bad day, I was going to have a good ride um, because of the robustness we'd built. Um, so one of the things that I've been focusing on the last few years is almost like a, one of my little points that I write down is almost performance probability. So with cycling, it's, it's a sport where you can't, you can't just go out there and say, I'm going to win today because it doesn't work like that. Like you've got, there's, a, there's so many factors that can happen. You could puncture, you could have a crosswind, you could crash. So you've, it's about optimizing your performance probability for success on the day. Um, and the way we improve my performance probability for nationals is that if the race was on from the gun, you had to go five hours full gas. If, um, wait, wait. For anyone who doesn't know the Australian nationals, it's 180K. It's 18 laps. Yeah, about 18 laps. 18 laps of a circuit. Well, 10.5k circuit, let's say 17 laps, something like that, with about a f- six-minute climb. Six-minute yeah. six climb, descent, small little up and down, flat to the finish, six-minute climb. Yep. Okay. It's, it's more or less climb, descent. Yep. Just, okay, just want to give everyone a background who doesn't know. We're just assuming everyone knows the Australian funding, of <laughs> yeah, course. No. But yeah, anyway. Um, so, yeah, I had to be robust enough to go five hours full gas um, or when it came down to it in the last hours, have great legs and be feeling fantastic that I can go with all the big moves in the last two hours. Um, and so we really built the program around endurance, strength, and, and that. So even if I punctured, I had enough energy reserves in the tank to ride back on and, and keep chasing that result. What about, so I'm hearing all this and I'm believing it as a, fellow cyclists and understanding the psych- the physical level of it all. One thing I'm not hearing is the psychological side of things. What is going on with you psychologically? Are you, are you completely going, I'll deal with that later and just ignoring that fact? Or are you aware of how you are psychologically and you just work as, as long as you know you've done the work, psychologically you're ready to go. What happens with you in a race? Because for me, I have my coach and I need to know that I'm ready for a race. But then once I get to a race, it's a whole nother ball game. Even if I'm ready for that race, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that I'm going to be good in that race. Because psychologically, if I'm not on for whatever reason, mentally into it or in the zone or whatever the hell it is, I could just have a shit day. So 
tell me about how it works for you. Because it sounds like for me, to a degree, you were a man with robots early on in your life, in robotics at school. Are you a robot when it comes to the race, knowing that you've got all the numbers in there? <laughs> no, um, it's, actually, uh, it's actually quite the opposite. Um, I'm a, I think of myself as a bit of a racer. Um, so no matter what the lead up has been, um, you just go out there and give it a crack. Um, if you ride racing tricycles, give it a crack. See if you can make something from the situation. Um, so, but what I, what I do rely on a lot is hard work. So if you do the work, you're gonna have the best chance on, on race day. Um, because you can't, you can pull rabbits out of a hat, but it gets a lot harder if you haven't done the, the preparation beforehand. Um, even at, when we race Worlds, um, and I won the world title there, that was pulling rabbits out of hat. Um, we'd done the work going really well, but I was, I think we were like a few points down on Viviani and Archibald um, in, in the points race. And I uh, know in the scratch race, the second last event, and um, we, were, we were in a break together, half a lap up. And I was like, this is not gonna work. Mathematically, it doesn't work. Like we have to, I have to get in front of them because they're gonna beat me in a kilo. So I swung up, dropped out of the break, and went back to the back of the bunch. Um, and then had to reconfigure the race in order to put seven like people in front, of, in front of them and for me to win the race in the end. So you, it's a lot about thinking on your feet, making it up as you go. But um, if you've got a really big engine to do that, it makes it so much easier. So um, in national specifically, where the opportunity arise where there was four of us that went away and it happened to be the four strongest guys in the race. I know how well Chris Harper's going, I know how well Durbo's going, and we're down the road, and they're like, this is fantastic. Things look great. Um, were you doing mass out there? I'm doing 400 up this climb, I'm doing 300 down this climb. Oh. Technically, we've got five minutes on the bunch. For them to get across to us, they're gonna have to do 480 up that climb. Were you doing like that sort of stuff? No, nah, I, I, I wasn't. I was in quite a lot of hurt, actually. <laughs> um, the way the race panned out was I was actually suffering quite a lot at the start of the race. Um, didn't have quite as good climbing legs as the rest of the guys, but I think that saved me because they were climbing a lot faster and they were doing a lot more damage to themselves. Towards the end of the race, when they slowed down, I hadn't done the damage because I couldn't do the damage. Mm. Um, and my legs were still there. So um, The old scenario of the, when the, you got the best legs, you're doing stupid things. The worst legs, you end up winning the race because you protect yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, I was. Uh, I think at one point, I'm like, I'm just guys. I'm just happy to get to the finish line here. <laughs> you know, you're riding away from me. But um, yeah, it ended up going well in the end. Yeah, nice, mate. Well, look, we've we've got to go get some dinner tonight. But um, I think we've touched on a little bit of who you are. There's a whole lot of like, I've already when I thought about doing you tonight, it was like two or three different sort of podcasts. But then. Your sister came up with this great idea of like the human myth, bu myth buster. And I think we've sort of touched on a few of your little myths. I reckon there's a million others out there that either no one knows about or have been brought up. Quiet. Yep. But um, I'm sensing a, a big sort of big year for you next year, I hope. But um, it's been fun catching up with you tonight. Thanks very much. Yeah, looking forward to having a crack, um, keep working away keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible and um, yeah, see you next year. Cheers mate. Cheers.
Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed another great episode there, talking to Michael. He's got some fantastic ideas there, and I really love picking his brain and listening the way he's come through the ranks to where he, <laughs> to where he is today. And I really do hope he can make that jump next year over here into Europe because he'd be a great guy to have around. And we love it when you guys get back in touch with us to let us know what you think of the episodes or some feedback. So feel free to get in touch with us at Instagram and Twitter at Life in the Peloton or just send us an email through lifeinthepeloton.com. Make sure you go down and check out some of that new merchandise <coughs> at lifeinthepeloton.com because 100% of those proceeds are going back into this podcast and that's what helps keep this thing driving along. So I'd really appreciate your support there and plus you get to wear the sweet merchandise. Again, go and check out Wide Angle Podium Network at wideanglepodium.com and I want to say thanks again to Lara, my producer, who's helping me behind the scenes. She's doing a lot of great work there too. So guys, until next time, tune in. I'll be getting ready for the Volta Espana, so make sure you tune in and watch me climbing up and down those mountains in Spain. Cheers, guys. <laughs>